In the late 1990s, three black transgender women in the Boston area were murdered, and each case had a different outcome. After the third murder, an activist across the country in San Francisco became increasingly frustrated that the narrative about violence against transgender people was being controlled by the media outside the community. She started the Transgender Day of Remembrance, refusing to forget the stories of those we've lost. I'm Charlie, and welcome to Crime Lines. Welcome back to Crime Lines. I hope everyone is doing well. I do need to give my retroactive shout out to Noelle, who recommended last week's episode on Donna Matthews and Michael Guyan. It was an interesting case to jump into, and I appreciate it. This week's podcast recommendation is a new one to me. It is called Trans Panic. A friend told me about it, and it is a podcast dedicated to true crime stories related to the trans community. I checked it out, and I really enjoyed listening in on the conversation around the cases, and I just recommend you check it out, too. Again, it is called Trans Panic. So today we are covering three cases that tell one overarching story, the start of the Transgender Day of Remembrance. Whenever we have a defining moment that we can point at and say, that's when something changed, it never really is that one thing. Take, for instance, what's happening right now with George Floyd. So many people are asking why the protests now and not for a different victim. That's a fair question, and the answer to it is that the protests are not about that one event. There is a long history that is built to this point. You can't get to a tipping point without a lot of weight already hanging over us. So when I decided to cover the murder of Rita Hester and the start of the Transgender Day of Remembrance, I should have known I was going to have to back up and cover some of that weight that was already building, that made this a tipping point in awareness. These cases all took place in and around Boston, Massachusetts. And Massachusetts, for those outside the U.S., it is known for being a liberal and progressive state, with Boston being a very politically active city within the state. Forbes ranks Boston as the fifth most liberal city in the country. If I was writing this episode like a novel, Boston would be its own character. But we're not going to see that side of Boston today. If this was a political podcast, we would be diving right into trans rights within liberal progressive America and its spot near the bottom of the priority list. But this isn't a political podcast, so let's pretend I didn't say that. I'll just leave a link to Dean Spade's speech, Trans Politics on a Neoliberal Landscape, in the show notes if you're interested. We are already a few minutes in, and I haven't even mentioned the case we're starting with yet. We are going to start with the murder of Chanel Pickett. This first story does talk about a specific sexual encounter in more detail than I usually use, only because it's relevant. 
So if you listen with kids around, you may want to consider listening before deciding if you're going to let them listen. Chanel Pickett and her identical twin, Gabrielle, were born in New York with their family being from the Buffalo area. As children, they would both dress in girls' clothing whenever they could, and they would sneak makeup. Being perceived as boys, they knew there would not be support at home, and they had to hide these things. As they grew into teenagers, they started finding the support they were looking for at a local center for gay and lesbian youth. Eventually, their mother found out that they were going to the center, and they tried to pass it off telling her, oh, they're just going through some stuff, they're just figuring themselves out. She wouldn't accept it, and the twins entered the foster care system around the age of 14. All things considered, this wasn't the worst thing that could happen because it meant they transferred high schools. Their first day in the new high school was the first day of their full social transition. They walked in as twin girls, and with their outgoing personalities, they immediately made friends. That lasted for about two weeks before they were outed. Their foster parent had gone to the principal to explain the situation as you would do. Their old school records were going to show up with them being identified as male. Well, the principal then talked to the faculty about it, and a teacher, they don't know which one, decided to share this information with the students. It spread like wildfire, and the bullying the Pickett twins experienced was as bad as you can imagine it would be. This is why training is so, so important. This never should have happened. Additional trauma was piled on these teen girls who were already dealing with abandonment issues. I am going to plug Gender Inc. here and include a link in my show notes. They provide training including in schools, and I encourage you to encourage your schools to give Gender Inc. a call if they need consultations or full-on training. I am familiar with the company and the founder, so this is not a blind recommendation. I didn't just Google this. I fully endorse Gender Inc. and the work they are doing. Okay, so back to Chanel. She made it through this ordeal and eventually settled in Boston, where she and Gabrielle shared an apartment. Chanel and her sister also both got jobs working for the local phone company in the sales department. Chanel eventually took a transfer within the company to a job she thought would just be a better fit. Until she met her direct supervisor, Deborah, and it became very clear this was not going to be a good fit. Deborah learned Chanel was trans and began being hateful towards her. Eventually, Chanel learned Deborah had outed her to coworkers and not in the let's all support her way, but in the trans bashing way. As the harassment at work continued, it started coming from more directions, and Chanel went up the chain of command to Deborah's boss. This person sided with Deborah, and within six weeks, they found a reason to fire Chanel. 
This was late 1994, early 1995. To give you a little snapshot in time, people were still debating the new don't ask, don't tell policy that allowed gay people to serve in the military if they just didn't say anything about it. Enforceable anti-discrimination laws for the trans community had to have felt like a pipe dream at that point. Chanel had trouble finding another job. Employment discrimination is a serious issue within the trans community. Unemployment of trans workers in the U.S. is about two to three times that of the general population and up to four times higher for those who are also a person of color like Chanel. On November 9, 1995, several months after losing her job, 23-year-old Chanel was out with her sister and friends at a popular Boston gay club called the Playland Cafe. While there, she met 34-year-old William Palmer. There are contradictory statements out there about whether this was their first meeting or if they had met even just in passing prior to this. Regardless, Chanel left the bar with William and her sister to go back to their apartment where the three of them smoked crack together. Chanel and William had hit it off and decided to go, just the two of them, back to William's apartment. According to his roommates, it was around 3 or 3.30 in the morning that they heard him come in. Less than two hours later, his roommates woke up to people shouting. They did not recognize one of the voices, but they could hear William telling this other person to keep quiet. Then there was screaming and sounds of a fight until one of the voices became muffled and everything got quiet. The roommates, now fully awake and alarmed, knocked on William's bedroom door, asking if everything was okay. William said calmly that he had a crazy expletive in there, but that everything was under control. The roommates were not entirely convinced, so they tried to open the door, but they could only open it a little crack before it banged into something that was blocking it from opening all the way. But things were quiet, and William must have everything under control, they figured, so they went back to bed. Around nine in the morning, William came out of his room and told one of his roommates that there was a problem. Chanel was dead. Rather than call 911, his roommates did nothing, and William called his attorney and made an appointment for that afternoon. When he showed up for the appointment and told the lawyer what happened, the attorney then called the police. So let's sum up our timeline here. At 5 a.m., there was a fight, and Chanel died around that time. Four hours later, William got around to calling his lawyer. And then he waited around another four hours, at least, for that appointment. This is eight hours. Chanel laid dead in a pool of blood on the floor for at least eight hours. Investigators went to William's apartment where they found Chanel, like the lawyer said they would. Due to the extent of injuries on Chanel and the relative lack on William, it's clear she was no match for him. 
He outweighed her by at least 60 pounds, and she bore the brunt of a physical attack. On autopsy, the medical examiner found hemorrhages on Chanel's neck muscles and fluid around her lungs and brain, indicating that the beating was not what killed her, but rather she had been strangled. William then gave a voluntary statement to the police, one that he obviously must have cleared through his attorney. He said that he brought Chanel home to his apartment, thinking she was a cisgender woman. They then engaged in sexual activity. Specifically, Chanel performed oral sex on him. She remained dressed, and it was when he reached for her groin area that he found out that she had male genitalia. At this point, William says, he flipped out, and he yelled at her to leave. Chanel refused to leave, and she started flipping out. She screamed things at him like, God will not die, and the devil is king. William's roommates did back up that during this argument that they overheard, they did hear religious things like this yelled out. But they also had eight hours to get their stories together before William went to his lawyer's office, and that needs to be taken into account. The picture William painted had Chanel as the primary attacker, saying he just tried to cover her mouth to get her to stop screaming. He put his hand on her throat, but not for a very long time, and he did not strangle her. He also claimed he only hit her once in the jaw after she bit his finger. William then said that he managed to overpower Chanel during the attack on him and get her on the floor face down. He sat on her back and held her shoulders down until she stopped fighting. He estimated it was about 10 minutes, but we do know this was a high adrenaline situation. He was under the influence of a stimulant, so who knows. William said that Chanel calmed down and was breathing when he got off of her. He then left her on the floor and got into bed and went to sleep, which seems an odd thing to do if you are afraid of this person who was attacking you. It was only when he woke up four hours later that he realized Chanel was still on the floor in more or less the same position. He tried to roll her over, realized she was dead, and knew that calling for an ambulance wouldn't have helped. That's why he decided to call his attorney and get legal advice before calling the police. So this is what William said happened, and the investigation did not support most of it. The injuries Chanel sustained were more than he fessed up to. Also, the idea he didn't know she was trans and didn't want to have sex with a trans woman also didn't add up. For one thing, several trans women and sex workers in the area came forward and identified William as someone they hooked up with or someone who was their client. And some of them were not friends of Chanel's. They didn't know her at all. They just recognized him and recognized the lie. Plus, the Playland Cafe was a gay bar. And not an on-the-down-low gay bar. It was a loud and proud, open-since-the-1930s gay bar. 
There is a long history of gay bars and their acceptance or rejection of trans clientele. While it didn't apply so much in the late 1990s as it did in the 50s and 60s, bars that had been historically open and inclusive, like the Playland Cafe, still tended to be the places trans people went. What I'm saying is that no one who had been to the Playland Cafe would have a good excuse for not knowing that it's a gay bar and that it's frequented by trans people. No one. Men who went to the Playland Cafe to pick up women were looking specifically for trans women. And after asking at the Playland, yes, 34-year-old William Palmer was identified as someone who had been there frequently. This was not a bar he accidentally stumbled into. He claims he only went there to buy cocaine, but in the 1990s, Boston had plenty of non-gay bars to buy coke at. So there are already some holes being poked in William's story, and on top of that, they did have some forensic evidence. The clothing William was wearing, there was semen on it. Semen that was not his on the crotch of his pants. Nothing that I read indicates that they matched it 100% to Chanel, but they did exclude William, and it was presented as this was hers. Now, that completely contradicted William's story that she remained dressed the whole time and he didn't know she was trans. But even if the semen wasn't hers, it was someone's, which also discredited his claims that he only had sex with cisgender women. With all of this evidence, William was arrested and charged with murder. He was given a $50,000 bond, which was a surprise since murder charges are usually without bond or at least with a more sizable one. The bond alone being only $50,000 worried the community that this was not being taken seriously. William's trial occurred in April 1997 and the prosecution was going with the motive that William did not want to be outed. Chanel was being loud, and he did not want his roommates to know he was in there with a trans woman. His defense, though, threw a few things at the jury. One was the trans panic defense, that William's reaction was justified because Chanel had tricked him into a sexual encounter. Not only that, it was a slightly removed trans panic defense because Chanel attacked him over his refusal to continue sex over his trans panic, and he was simply defending himself. This came at the jury with two ingrained stereotypes, one, the angry black woman, and two, the sexually deviant trans woman. I don't think that was an accident. Of course, the state tried to counter this with the evidence of his previous sexual relationships with trans women, plus the location where he met Chanel. But only two of the women who had encounters with him were allowed to testify, even though at least six came forward. The defense also said that Chanel may have been in a cocaine-induced psychosis, acting outrageous, and William's actions were justified to defend himself, but 
they were not calling this self-defense. They were denying that William killed her at all. They challenged the actual cause of death, saying that the autopsy was incomplete. They're saying that Chanel may have died of a cocaine overdose or maybe even a heart attack, but they don't know because the ME did not look into those things. When the medical examiner was on the stand, they asked him why he didn't run a tox screen to get the cocaine level. He said it wasn't necessary since Chanel was strangled to death. If you find someone shot in the head, you don't then run an arsenic test to rule out poisoning. This is standard procedure, but it was a gap that gave the defense room to bring into question the cause of death. William testified in his own defense and told a well-rehearsed story. And you can tell it was constructed. When William gave his initial statement to the police, he used feminine pronouns when talking about Chanel and then occasionally switched them to male. But when he testified in court, William referred to Chanel as she in the beginning of the story. So when he's discussing his attraction to her and bringing her back to his apartment. Once he started talking about the physical altercation, he switched to male pronouns. This was designed, in my view, to paint a picture for the jury. His attorneys distanced him from the claim that he was attracted to anyone other than cis women by using feminine pronouns and portraying Chanel rightly as a woman. But they certainly couldn't let him use feminine pronouns when he's discussing socking her in the jaw and physically restraining her, so that's when he switched to misgendering her. The jury could decide between first-degree murder, second-degree manslaughter, assault and battery, or an acquittal. They convicted William of assault and battery. He was acquitted of all murder charges. In Kevin Rothstein's article, Travesty of Justice, he asks the obvious question. What if the roles were reversed? What if the poor black trans woman killed the white computer programmer claiming he attacked her first. Would this be an assault and battery conviction? Would this be a, oh, well, maybe he died of a heart attack? Personally, I doubt it. To me, the jury bought the trans panic defense, but the defense team had to give them something to hang a verdict on, and they picked the question over cause of death. To agree with the jury is for me to believe that William beat Chanel took a nap, and then she just happened to die of some other cause while he was sleeping, and then have the physical signs of being strangled. To me, that is a leap beyond the bounds of reasonable doubt. But reports about the trial have said that the prosecution was outmatched by an expensive defense. William's side paid thousands of dollars for expert witnesses. In short, William Palmer got the justice he paid for. In May 1997, William was sentenced for the assault and battery. The maximum he faced would be two years behind bars, but he was likely facing probation because this was a first offense. The prosecution decided to push it a little bit, asking for 18 months in jail 
because the assault and battery was brutal. The judge, though, gave William Palmer the maximum. Two years in jail, six months suspended, and a probation period after release. He gave him more than the state asked for. I am sure that William's high-priced attorney thought he would get away with nothing, but clearly the judge didn't believe the narrative they spun for the jury. During sentencing, he told William's lawyer that William should kiss the earth he walked on. And I agree, the evidence did not acquit him, the defense team did. And with two years in jail, William pretty much got away with this. The trans community in Boston was outraged, none more than Chanel's sister, Gabrielle, of course. Gender Talk, a local trans issues radio show out of the Boston area, had Gabrielle on their show after the verdict. This episode is available on iTunes in the podcast app if you wanted to search for it. The hosts spoke out to the community, calling them to activism. They held public meetings to get input on the issues and what to do about this. One of the hosts is Nancy Nangeroni, who is an activist in the Boston area, and she is a hero. When Chanel was murdered, she was on the radio speaking out as an openly trans woman and even announcing events she would be at. She knew that was a risk. She knew emotions were running high. She was reporting on the murders of trans women, so believe me, she knew the risk. But the work was worth it, and she was doing it regardless. And it was work she would have to keep doing because it was less than a year and a half after the trial that another murder of a Black trans woman occurred in Boston. On September 11, 1998, the police entered the apartment of 35-year-old Monique Thomas around 8 p.m. There is no indication in any of the reporting what led them there whether it was a welfare check or if a neighbor complained of an odor. When they entered, they found Monique's body next to her bed with a pile of clothes on top as if to conceal her. Her hands and feet were bound with electrical cords, and there was a kitchen knife on the bed, though she was not stabbed. The cause of death was asphyxiation. While Monique's apartment did not look fully ransacked or anything, there was enough missing to indicate that there was a robbery. Her jewelry was gone, credit cards, and also her car. The police put out a regional be on the lookout for the car, a brown 1990 Cadillac, and this was successful. On September 20th, 25-year-old George Stallings was pulled over in New Hampshire while driving Monique's car. He initially identified himself as Monique, using her male birth name, of course, but the police had already found her body nine days before that, and the plate came back as stolen, so he was immediately arrested. Initially, the charges were possession of stolen property and falsely identifying himself in New Hampshire, and those allowed them to hold him while Massachusetts worked on getting him charged with the murder of Monique Thomas. George first tried to deny it. He said a group of men found out Monique was trans, and they were the ones who killed her. So he was basically invoking the trans panic defense on behalf of these shadowy mystery men. But the evidence against George Stallings was considerable. He had the key to the car, 
He had keys to Monique's apartment. In the weeks after her death, he had cashed two checks from her account to himself. And then one of his friends came forward and said George confessed to him. And if this isn't enough, his fingerprints were at Monique's apartment, somewhere he had no other reason to be, and his DNA was found in a bloodstain, leaving no question that he was there at the time of the murder. With this overwhelming evidence, George confessed. He said that this was really a robbery gone wrong. Someone had told him that Monique was a drug dealer who had a lot of cash stashed at her apartment. He went to the apartment with a friend, and he waited in the living room alone while Monique was in her bedroom, and I have to assume this mysterious friend was back there as well. After he waited in the living room for a while, George entered the bedroom and hit Monique in the head, demanding money. At this violent turn, the friend bolted from the apartment. When Monique wouldn't give the money to George, he continued the attack. He bound her, strangled her, and left with her money, jewelry, keys, and some checks. George claimed his rage was related to her refusing to give him money, which I might believe, except for his first story to the police, the one where he said Monique was killed by other people because they found out she was transgender. He denied knowing her before this point. She is not identified as trans in the early reporting on the case that I have found, so how did he know to use the trans panic defense for those mystery men? I'm wondering if he brought it up because it was the reason he killed her. There was a lot of rage in this attack, and it seems like more than you would expect for a robbery that amounted to a modest amount of cash and an eight-year-old car. George would eventually plead guilty to second-degree murder, so this did not go to trial, and he was given a life sentence. He has applied for parole twice and was denied both times, with the most recent time being 2019. He's eligible to reapply in four years. But before this resolution in Monique's case occurred, we have two more murders. The month after Monique was found dead, Matthew Shepard was killed. And a month after that, Rita Hester was murdered. So Matthew Shepard was not trans, and he was not in the Boston area, but his murder absolutely affected what came next. For those who don't know, Matthew was a 21-year-old college student who was beaten, tortured, and left to die in Wyoming. He was found alive, but later died of his injuries. The men who killed him claimed the gay panic defense. They intended to rob Matthew, but Matthew made sexual advances towards one of them. Both men were convicted. But at the time it happened, October 1998, Boston had just seen the murder of Monique Thomas be a blip on the local media radar and get no national attention. Matthew Shepard's case had gotten a lot of national and international coverage, and it began moving the needle on conversations about hate crimes against gay men, conversations we sorely needed to have. Now, a month after Matthew's murder, Boston experienced the murder of another trans woman, another Black woman, named Rita Hester. 
Rita was a nightclub singer and had been at the Silhouette Lounge on November 28, 1998, just two days away from her 35th birthday. She was there with her sister, who reported Rita left the Silhouette Lounge around 5 p.m. There is one report that two men were walking behind Rita as she made her way home, and one of the men was someone she knew. Whether they were following her or just walking along is not clear. Rita arrived home, but she couldn't have been there long before she was attacked. At 6.13 p.m., just over an hour after she was last seen, one of Rita's neighbors called 911 after hearing screams for help from her apartment. Another neighbor didn't hear the cries for help, but did hear some thumping noises around the same time. She wasn't alarmed, though, because to her, it sounded like someone just banging on a door. The police arrived and found Rita alive, but in grave condition. She had been stabbed over 20 times. No one saw the attacker or attackers leave, leading the police to conclude they took off out the back door. Rita died as the ambulance arrived at the hospital. The police set up a tip line, but no solid leads came in, and to this day, Rita's murder remains unsolved. And with no suspect, no motive has been established. But with the rage of the killing and no signs of anything being stolen, many believe that this may have been a hate crime. Now, it's not one thing that makes a case like Rita's stand out from the others. There are contributing factors. In Rita's case, her personality played a role. Rita knew everyone. She was outgoing, and she was the person who made everyone feel included and welcome. Her loss rocked the LGBTQ plus community in Boston because it affected them on a personal level. It wasn't the loss of another trans woman who was a friend of a friend. Rita was their friend. Another factor was her family. Unlike a lot of trans people, particularly at this time, Rita did not lose the support of her family when she transitioned. She and her mother, in particular, had a close and affectionate relationship. Her mom said that even though Rita was in her 30s, She'd lay her head down in her mom's lap when she was back visiting, and she just really wanted to spend a lot of time with her. At the vigil after Rita's murder, her mother said she wished she could have died for Rita. If she was there, she would have taken the stabbing and told Rita to run. It is impactful to hear those words from a grieving mother, and it moved people to want to act. Another thing that contributed was the two previous murders we talked about today. While there was a vigil for Chanel, most of the people who attended were transgender. But the publicity around the case and around the trial had caught the attention of other community members and the cis-hetero population. So when Rita's case made headlines and a vigil was announced a year and a half later, People from outside the trans community attended in much larger numbers. We also have the juxtaposition between the attention Matthew Shepard's case got and the reporting versus what we had with Rita. The reporting on the murder of Rita Hester was disrespectful. And I don't say that as someone judging the reporting 
at the time to today's standards. We have come a long way in how we talk about and handle trans issues in the media. We have far to go, I know that for a fact, but we have come some distance. That said, the papers were being called out at the time for how bad this was. Aside from misgendering her, they were publishing articles claiming that Rita lived a double life, which is absolutely unfounded. Rita presented as a woman 24-7. Some of her neighbors didn't know she was a trans woman until it was published in the papers after her death. Now, how is that a double life? She was a woman. She dressed as a woman. She presented as a woman. She was living one life. They also referred to her as a transvestite, and I do need to give you a quick 1990s language lesson. Transvestite meant someone who cross-dressed but still identified with their assigned gender, so we're talking more like a drag queen or a cross-dresser. Transsexual was used for those who did not identify with their assigned gender. So calling Rita, someone who lived every day as a woman, a transvestite was not accurate reporting, and it was feeding into this double-life narrative. When these complaints were voiced by the community, they got pushback, being told they were putting reporters under a PC microscope. Okay, so they weren't current on the vocabulary at the time, but that wasn't the big issue they were being called out on. They claimed Rita lived a double life just because she was trans. A double life implies deception, which is not a political correctness issue. It's not a grammar issue. The idea that trans people are deceptive for not announcing that they are trans, to say that trans people do not have a right to privacy, is disgusting. But rather than take this education the community was offering for free, some of the local media doubled down on it, and one paper ran the headline, Is Rita Hester's Murder Being Eclipsed by the Transgender Community's Grammatical Agenda? I don't even think I need to point out what is wrong with this headline, and just this idea that requesting accurate reporting is someone's agenda. Anyway, the one good thing that came out of these public conversations about how they were talking about Rita's murder was that it kept Rita's case in the news. Then one day, another trans activist hero, Gwendolyn Smith, was talking about Rita Hester's murder on an AOL forum that she had started for the trans community. It was one of the first online spaces for trans people. Gwendolyn lived across the country in San Francisco, so that tells you how much farther Rita's case traveled than the other two cases we've talked about except it was still largely within the trans community that it had made it that far. As Gwendolyn is in this chat room and the murders of other trans people were being brought up, she realized how many within the community, people in that chat, had never heard of them. People had never heard of Chanel Pickett and the trans panic defense in that case. And just like we've talked about in my previous episodes on missing and murdered Indigenous women, we can't identify a problem if we're not paying attention to it. So Gwendolyn first started a website called Remembering Our Dead to chronicle these stories. 
And then a year after Rita's murder, the first Transgender Day of Remembrance was held. 20 years later, on November 20th every year, events are now held around the world to recognize the problem of violence against the trans community and to memorialize those who have been killed. Rita Hester's death sparked a movement that pushed the mainstream press into talking about violence against the trans community the way Matthew Shepard got it rolling for the discussions on hate crimes against gay men. But unlike the Matthew Shepard case that got the conversation going immediately, Transgender Day of Remembrance was a slow burn. It took years before it was being widely reported on. But the activists and the advocates, they didn't give up. Year after year, they were gathering to remember those who had been lost to violence. They basically kept talking until we started listening. And now that we're paying attention, what do we know? Well, we know this is an intersectional issue because Black trans women are disproportionately represented. Between 2013 and 2017, there were at least 102 murders of transgender and non-gender conforming people in the United States. 75 of them were Black. At least 26 trans and non-gender conforming people were killed in the U.S. in 2019, and 22 of them were Black. The conversations about trans issues has to include racial issues, or the conversation is excluding the most vulnerable members of the community. While the growth of Transgender Day of Remembrance really needs to be honored, we also have to hope for a day where it is not needed. As of July 2019, only eight states had banned gay or trans panic as a defense. In the last year, around eight more have passed or introduced legislation about it. There has been legislation sitting in committee for about a year now for banning gay and trans panic as a defense in the federal courts. I don't know that it is going somewhere, but what I do know is people are trying. Things are moving forward, but the majority of the states in the U.S. still allow people to claim self-defense or temporary insanity based on learning someone is trans or claiming a gay person made a pass at them. That is still a defense for murder in most states and in the federal courts. We have come so far, and we still have so far to go. Please contact your state representatives and urge them to sponsor legislation to ban the trans panic defense. Then contact Congress and tell them that you want to see the Gay and Trans Panic Defense Prohibition Act of 2019 make some progress. I do want to point out that this would apply to federal cases, and we are going to intersect here with missing and murdered Indigenous persons. Murder cases on tribal lands are federal jurisdiction. So again, we have to remember that trans issues are so, so often intersectional. If you need information or resources, I will leave links in the show notes. I'm going to end this episode with the 2019 Transgender Day of Remembrance reading of the names into the record in the U.S. House of Representatives by Representative Ayanna Presley. 
I rise today in remembrance of Rita Hester, a black transgender woman killed in the Massachusetts 7th District for whom Transgender Day of Remembrance was established in 1999. I rise today because 20 years later, many more lives continue to be stolen. This year, we have been robbed of at least 22 transgender people because of hate, fear, and vitriol. 22 souls, the majority of whom are black transgender women. 22 people whose families, friends, and partners are forever marred by grief. 22 experiences of secondhand trauma for transgender people everywhere. Among them, we remember Dana Martin, Jazeline Ware, Ashanti Carmen, Claire Legato, Malaysia Booker, Michelle Tamika Washington, Paris Cameron, Shinal Lindsay, Chanel Skurlock, Zoe Spears, Brooklyn Lindsay, Denali Barry Stuckey, Tracy Single, Bubba Walker, Kiki Fantroy, Jordan Kofer, Pebbles Ladime Doe, Bailey Reeves, B. Love Slater, Jamagio Jamar Berryman, Italy Marlowe, and Brianna B.B. Hill. May they rest in peace and power. Today we remember still others not included on this list because their missing persons reports remain un uninvestigated or because they are misgendered and dead named after their death because the people closest to them refuse to recognize their truths. We remember those who die from preventable illnesses, poverty, and violence as a result of discrimination in healthcare, employment, education, and housing.